Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. Blue Ridge Tacos. Kimchi with soup beans and cornbread. Family stories hiding in cookbook margins. African-American mountain gardens. These are a few of the stories that readers will find in a new anthology from Ohio University Press. The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell, Contemporary Appalachian Tables, includes writings from diverse contributors, showing us that Appalachian Tables today and the stories they hold offer new ways into understanding past, present, and future American foodways. The book was edited by Elizabeth Engelhart and Laura Smith, who joined me by phone to talk about the project's history and scope. Plus, we'll hear contributors Annette Sunuk-Clapsaddle, Courtney Ballastier, Emily Hilliard, and Robert Geip reading excerpts from their chapters. First, Laura Smith. My name is Laura Smith, and um, I live uh, both in eastern Kentucky, in Egypt, Kentucky, and in Lexington, Kentucky, and work out of Hazard, uh, Kentucky. Um, For my day job, I work in philanthropy and community economic development with the Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky in Hazard, Um, but I also went to school to study folklore and am a writer. Um, I write most often about foodways. Appalachian food, um, have a big interest in um, what's happening locally in our region with um, local agriculture um, and sustainable agriculture, um, and help um, start an organization called the Appalachian Food Summit in 2014. Great. And so I wonder if you could sort of tell us just a little bit about the book. Sure. So in 2014, myself and um, a chef named Travis Milton and a writer named Ronnie Lundy um, got together and we started um, or planted the seeds for um, an organization that grew into the Appalachian Food Summit, which is a community of farmers and chefs and restaurateurs and scholars and um, community organizers and just everybody who's interested in their, you know, whatever angle they're coming from in Appalachian foodways, both traditional uh, foodways in the region, but also what's happening today with food and what food can tell us about our region and our histories and the current moment that we're in. Um, So we started having these um, annual summits, um, and they've been held all over the region at this point, and we would invite people to come in and talk about their work. And again, it was very interdisciplinary. So this would be like, you know, somebody who's brewing beer in Somerset, Kentucky, and also, um, you know, a scholar who's done, um, you know, who's studied things like um, tacos in Southwest Virginia. Um, and so they would make for these really interesting conversations and conferences. And out of that grew the idea um, for a collection of essays that might include some of those folks who had um, presented and been engaged with the Appalachian Food Summit but also inviting in new writers and storytellers and artists um, and scholars to participate. So um, myself and Elizabeth got together with OU Press um, in Athens, Ohio, Swallow Press, um, and we had a great uh, publisher there who, you know, saw the potential for an Appalachian food waste book. Um, I think one of the driving forces for why we wanted to to do this is that there have been books published about Appalachian food. There's certainly a lot of cookbooks out there um, about Appalachian food and some books that are kind of memoir or, you know, some history, but there had never been um, a book published that was um, a look, a contemporary look at Appalachian food and that was um, a reader, you know, or included multiple voices in it and was really looking at the region through a foodways lens. Um, and so we decided to put together that collection. Hmm. And how did, how did it sort of come together? Were there people that you knew from the beginning that you wanted to include? Was there an open kind of call or how did you sort of, um, you and Elizabeth select, um, or curate kind of the, the collection of writings in the book? Sure. Well, it really came 
um, out organically. You know, we didn't put out an RFP or anything like that. Um, it really grew out of the community that was the Appalachian uh, Food Summit. So there were certain uh, people who had presented and had presented, you know, essays or papers during, during the summit that we knew we wanted to include um, or had been to related Appalachian Food Summit events. So Mike Crowley, for example, um, who has a, a beautiful essay in the book, Mike um, is um, grew up in Corbin, Kentucky, which is the home of Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, and is Korean American. And so he wrote this beautiful piece that he read at an Appalachian Food Summit event in Corbin about growing up Korean American in Corbin, and about you know it starts out with when the Taco Bell came to town, <laughs> and so it's this beautiful um, part memoir, part looking at the blending of you know the types of food that his mom was making at home, um, you know, including kimchi mixed with, um, you know, the traditional, more, what we think of more traditional food that his father's side of the family was making mixed with growing up in a place um, like Corbin in the 1980s when you wanted to eat Taco Bell and McDonald's. Um, So that's a piece that, you know, really came out of an event that he read and we were like, we need, that piece needs to be published somewhere. Um, because it's too good not to publish it. So it was a lot of um, those types of pieces that had already come to us and needed to find a home were just too good not to be published. And then, um, you know, the other pieces that got included were scholars or writers that we knew, um, you know, who um, were working in, in the foodways world and we knew brought really important perspective or were doing really important contemporary work um, writing about the region that, you know, we just knew we had to include. So Annette Clapsaddle is one of those people. Rita Brown is one of those folks um, that we we went out and recruited and, and begged for them to please write a piece or <laughs> contribute a piece um, to the collection. Hmm. Well, I'm curious kind of what are some of the highlights for you in this book? Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that I'm proud of and excited about in the book is that it really, I think a lot of times when you think about a book, um, or if I just say, yeah, we wrote a book about Appalachian food, you're thinking about, you know, immediately your mind may go to like, you know, what your granny was making, or it's very backwards looking or focused. And this book really looks at Um, a lot of contemporary foodways about what's happening right now. It really tries to take apart um, stereotypes and present the region in a, in a truer form of what it is, that it's not a monolithic region. And, you know, it's impossible to get around issues of labor, of gender, of race. When you look at our food, because our food is so um, mixed, when you start talking about Appalachian food, you have to, you have to talk about race. You have to talk about, Native American um, culture and history in the region, African-American culture and history in the region, and then the many immigrants who came from Eastern Europe and Western Europe and all over the place who contributed to the types of foods that we see on our plate and continue, and new immigrants as well. There's a um, piece in the book on the Blue Ridge taco um, and tacos that are being Uh, served at rodeos that happen all along uh, the Blue Ridge and in Southwest Virginia, um, Mexican rodeos that happen. And so, you know, it gives you this lens into the region that requires you to step into um, a place of complexity and nuance. So, you know, some of the the pieces in the book um, that do that, Carita Brown, whose family is from Harlan County, Kentucky, Um, African-American mining family. Um, She's looking at um, gardens and gardening traditions in Harlan County um, and the gardens that folks in her community kept. Um, Annette Clapsaddle's piece is beautiful. Um, She's looking at the differences between how food is presented and served to people on both the white side of her family and the Cherokee side of her family and drawing those cultural distinctions uh, between that. Um, so there's just a lot of good pieces. And then I love the piece by um, Courtney um, where she's talking about uh, what it means to go back home through food. Um, she's looking at populations of folks from eastern Kentucky and West Virginia who moved up, you know, had to leave home and go up the Hillbilly Highway to places like Detroit 
to find jobs and the way that they continue to keep home close and create community through preserving, um, well, through a, you know, a Cool Whip carton of, of beans, <laughs> in her mm. case. Um, and then, you know, there are other pieces like Emily Hilliard's piece, um, which really calls into question the idea of tradition and that um, tradition is really something that is dynamic, that is forever changing and forever evolving. Um, and so it's, it's part, of the, part of the book that I think makes it interesting is each chapter focuses on a single thing. And that was kind of our guidance to writers um, is that pick a thing. Maybe it's an ingredient. Maybe it's um, a place. Maybe it's a particular dish um, or, you know, what folklore would call material culture. So the piece that I wrote is based on my um, great-grandmother's cookbook that I inherited. And when I inherited it and opened it up, I found out she'd been using it as a diary. Um, so there are, you know, different um, singular items or things that every, that every um, piece is looking at as, you know, kind of a a lens in to talk about much broader and bigger issues that include labor, race, class, place, identity, um, even sexuality, all of those things um, that we are really talking about when we talk about food. Um, I always ask people at the end of interviews if there's something something we missed or anything else you would want to say to folks about this book and this collection. Sure. I mean, I think... Um, what I've been saying as I've been going out and doing readings and talking is the book is incomplete. You know, this was our first um, kind of swing at putting together what would an Appalachian Foodways reader look like. And so there are incredible essays uh, within the book, and it just barely scratches the surface. Um, it's still predominantly white writers. Um, who are in the book, um, and it's incomplete. You know, there are more stories um, and more documentation and more, um, you know, histories that didn't get included in the book. So we hope that it's the spark of a conversation um, that continues to, to grow and go and that it inspires readers to tell their own story. That was Laura Smith co-editor of The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell, Contemporary Appalachian Tables. Next, we'll hear from Laura's co-editor, Elizabeth Englehart. I'm Elizabeth Englehart. I'm the John Shelton Reed Professor of Southern Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, but in part, I'm in that position because I'm from Western North Carolina, and it is just a real pleasure and honor to be back in the state. I grew up in the mountains. My early research was about uh, women's environmental and ecological work in both literature and uh, action in the mountains. And uh, this book represents for me, while I've done a lot of work on food studies since then, this gives me a chance to really turn back to Appalachia, which is my first love, and uh, be part of a project that has all kinds of just exciting folks who are talking about what food is in the mountains today. Hmm. Well, yeah, and I wonder if you could kind of tell us a little bit about the book, kind of what is it for folks who've not heard of it, not put their hands on it? My favorite thing about this book is that it starts with contemporary tables, and it's not a book that is about finding the very first recipe or deciding what counts and what doesn't count, what's authentic and what isn't authentic. It's a book about, hey, let's convene a whole bunch of people, get them to sit down, tell their stories about eating in the mountains, and see what happens when we put all of that together. What were some of the goals for this book or the hopes um, in compiling this collection of writings? So I, I foreshadowed them in saying what I really like about the book. It was a book where we wanted to really look with clear eyes about the diversity of mountain communities, about the ways that we can hold to family rituals, even as they have to evolve over time. It was a book where we wanted to see what happened if we just asked people to tell a story about 
the food that we eat. Um, each chapter in the book is in some ways organized around a different object, and we had an amazing designer for the book. So you can see on the cover some of those objects in each chapter is introduced with an image that represents one of the objects that's discussed. And that became important because we really wanted to take seriously that metaphor of we're all sitting down at a table. What's on the table? How do those things that we bring into a room with us represent the stories that we want to tell? So this is not your first book you've been involved with that relates to food. And you you end up teaching a lot about food um, there in Chapel Hill. And I wonder if you could sort of talk just broadly about um, what's useful about studying kind of the world through the lens of food and what, what kind of opportunities that gives us? So let me do that in two directions. One direction is all of us have to eat. And we all have memories about foods that we care about. And when we describe the foods we grew up with, the foods we care about today, where we get them, who prepared them, who serves them, who has access to them, who doesn't, how what we like to eat has changed over time, how we feel pleasure in eating, how we can feel pain or guilt in eating, who has food, who doesn't have enough food. We're really talking about structures of society. We're talking about what brings us together, what divides us, how power works. And those are the questions that I find really interesting and they matter. But it's very hard to walk up to someone and say, tell me about how power works in your life. It's much easier to say, let's have a conversation about what we grew up eating, what we eat today, why it matters. So for me, that's what food studies is. Second way I'd answer that question actually comes through a class that I taught this past spring here at Chapel Hill, where we were fortunate to have the papers in our library. We had just um, been given them, entrusted them, by a man named Lee Calhoun, who is really known as the the person who is the go-to knowledge source about Southern heritage apples. And when Lee started thinking about apples in the South, he thought, well, you know, maybe there, there are 40 or maybe there are 80 or maybe there are 100 varietals of historic apples that uh, have, have long uh, traditions in the South. And it turns out that there are hundreds. And part of why there are so many and part of why there are more in the South that have been preserved, whose stories we still know, are because we like to tell stories in Appalachia, in the South. The premise of this book is that we like to sit around tables and talk to each other. And it turns out that the way apples work botanically is that each tree, if you, if you plant, if, you, if I eat an apple today and I plant that seed, the apple tree that grows from that seed is not the same apple as what I ate. And if I don't keep the story of that first apple that I ate and know to preserve that tree, to graft it, to, to find something important in it, then that apple disappears. So the other side of food stories is that we can remember ourselves if we remember our foods and we talk about our foods. And I find both of those really useful and interesting and important meaningful. Hmm. Thank you. I wonder if you could talk about the introduction that you wrote for the book and sort of um, where you started readers. So sometimes with an anthology, with a collection of authors, there are subsections or there are um, pathways through the book that it's really clearly the editors have sat down and said, you read this one first and then you read that one and you make your way through the book. And uh, I spent a long afternoon with Ronnie Lundy, who wrote our afterword for the book, uh, with all of the chapters of this book just kind of laid out on the floor of a, of a big room. And as we started to think about how we're going to construct the book, and Laura was part of this conversation, although she wasn't there that day, we realized that the straight line didn't work. The subsections didn't work because we want people to have that same experience, that experience when you sit down at a table and 
some you know you cross you talk to the person next to you and then you after a while you talk to the person across the table from you and then four people over here get into a conversation and sometimes you have a moment where everyone's talking to each other and we wanted to invite people to experience this book in the same way and so when i sat down with this to write the introduction to this book i wanted to describe what might be inviting in that process why that process might be more important, why we weren't dividing this book up in a kind of traditional way. And so I did it by thinking about um, an essay that has been really meaningful to me over time, and it comes from the um, feminist science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin, who passed away a few years ago. Um, As far as I know, Le Guin didn't have meaningful experiences in Appalachia. She is an author who's most known for her time in the Pacific Northwest. She had a real relationship with Mount St. Helens. She writes about that. But she wrote an essay that's called The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction. And it's an essay that's about, rather than the story arc having to follow the path of an arrow, you begin with some action, it rises, you have a climax, and it falls off, that the novels she loved the best were the ones that follow a carrier bag, where she's saying you just put a bunch of interesting things together in a bag, people, objects, ideas, and they rub up against each other. And you just watch that happen, and you engage in it, and you rub against those ideas, and you take on some of those objects, and you have that conversation across the table. So I wrote an intro that uses Le Guin's idea, that uses that metaphor to suggest that you should wander your own way through this book. You should have your own objects in mind. You should duck in in one place and then flip 20 pages later and duck into another place and just see what happens. And Ronnie ends her afterward with a similar invitation. We sit down at a table together and we tell a bunch of stories and they don't have to go anywhere. The point is the telling. Let's see. I think my last question for you is um, is the question I ask at the end of every interview, which is, is there something that we missed or something else that you would want people to know about this book or about um, Appalachian foodways? I guess for me, I want people to just look around and not immediately edit out what you think doesn't count. And then that lets us talk about the ramps and the cornbread and the and the soup beans. And it lets us talk about the roadside restaurant with the crazy architecture of a hot dog on the roof. Or it lets us talk about the, the bad buffet meal that nonetheless brought people together and... You know, I think that um, when we do that, then maybe we could listen to each other a little bit more. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm Rachel Geringer, and in the first half of the show, we heard from Laura Smith and Elizabeth Engelhart, editors of a new anthology from Ohio University Press called The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell. Contemporary Appalachian Tables. In the second half, we'll hear several of the book's many contributors reading excerpts of their chapters. First, Annette Sanook Clapsaddle. My name is Annette Sanook Clapsaddle, and I am an English and Cherokee Studies teacher at Swain County High School in Bryson City, North Carolina. Um, I live in Cherokee, North Carolina, um, and I'm a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians and um, mostly write fiction. have dabbled in a few other areas, but um, we'll have my debut novel coming out with the University Press of Kentucky in the fall. I'm so excited about that book. Ah, <laughs> uh, me too. Yeah. Not as excited as I am. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and what is your chapter in the food we eat and the stories we tell called? 
it's called My Great Grandmother is a Cherokee dot dot dot, which means that I am uh, not finishing the uh, sentence that I usually hear um, from folks who meet me for the first time, um, which is My Great Grandmother is a Cherokee Indian princess. Is a little inside joke. Ah, huh. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I think whenever you're ready, if you want to read it, that would be great. Okay. All right. Um, This is chapter six uh, in the collection. My great-grandmother is a Cherokee. Food's ready. Get in line. There are no more angst-inducing words in the Southern lexicon. Until this announcement, we've all been just polite enough to hold out until the food is blessed. But now comes the moment when we have to decide who leads the charge to the buffet line. Who deserves sustenance first translates into who is valued most. And then that question is further simmered to a sticky reduction of what's really important. Who gets the inaugural scoop of corn pudding? For two communities that have long shared traditions, there is also no scene more exemplary of the cultural difference between Southern Appalachian and Cherokee social practices. If I am attending a small town family reunion in rural Western North Carolina, my eight and four-year-old sons jerk me from my seat while blue-haired ladies shove precariously balanced styrofoam plates into each of my hands so that the boys can make their picky selections of the spread, likely limited to beige carbohydrates. If I'm in Cherokee, I settle in to wait, or if need be, join the serving crew. This is because the first to be served in Cherokee, and generally among Native people, are the elders. Other gatherings prioritize parents providing food for their children, a practice not uncommon at restaurants when our servers ask if we would like our children's orders brought out before our food is ready. This difference not only highlights the perceived order of human importance, it also underscores a differentiation between helping the vulnerable and honoring the venerable. This periodically causes confusion for my children, who cannot understand why near strangers are pulling them from the front of the line and haphazardly eroding the sanctity of their would-be dessert vessel with the likes of runny casseroles and greasy chicken legs, all while their mother flails behind, helpless, shouting dietary recommendations and reminders to, quote, use your manners. It is disorienting for us all. In practical terms, it is also frustrating to have a toddler running around a fellowship hall, weaving in and out of wheelchairs and walkers, looking for a way to expend his sugar-fueled energy because he has already finished eating before the adults have begun. For the Cherokee, Being at the head of the line is not simply an honor that acknowledges years spent on this earth. Whether they are serving as head man or head woman in a traditional dance or linking arms in the front of the picket line, Cherokee elders are there to lead. They are the examples we strive to follow in celebrating or in fighting. They are to be seen, heard, and followed. Opportunities for gratitude and leadership are equally communicated in Cherokee culture. While McDonald's offers seniors discounted coffee out of respect for an aging population, the Cherokee Tribal Council offers elders seats on influential committees and boards out of reverence for their experiences. Cherokee culture also has a process for recognizing those individuals who uphold its traditions and ideals through a life of integrity and care for others. To be named a beloved woman or a beloved man signifies the highest honor the tribe can award. Such a title cannot be earned through singular acts or political favor. Though similar to a Lifetime Achievement Award, the honor marks a beginning rather than an end. It signifies to the entire tribe that this person walks a path we should all strive to follow. While the title can be awarded posthumously, living beloved women and men lead cultural preservation and revitalization efforts well into their 80s and 90s. Recently, beloved woman Myrtle Driver translated a chapter from Charles Frazier's 13 Moons in E.B. White's Charlotte's Web to be used by the immersion school students into Cherokee language. 
and beloved man Jerry Wolf works full-time at the Museum of the Cherokee Indian to share knowledge and stories with visitors. He is a local celebrity, generously contributing to the education of both Cherokee and non-Cherokee. Traditionally, it is not uncommon for extended families in Cherokee communities to share households, co-raise children, and divide work. The elder, often female, head of the family oversees this complex organization and intertwining of relationships. For this reason, politicians will speak to the elders of a large family, understanding that their children and grandchildren will likely follow the matriarch's or patriarch's lead in the polling booth. This is also one reason why claiming to have a great-grandmother who is a Cherokee Indian princess will likely be met with an eye roll. You might have a grandmother who is Cherokee, but she was far too busy strengthening tribal democracy to be a princess. My own grandmother served on tribal council for over 20 years without missing a single meeting. One of my favorite stories of her senior leadership is of the time a younger councilman saw her across the street in a nearby town. When my grandmother acknowledged his presence by nodding to him, he immediately raised his hand as if to vote in accordance with her suggestion. After all, that's how the exchange would have happened if they had been in the council chambers passing legislation. Esteem for Cherokee elders is hard-earned. They are tasked with being conduits of traditional lifeways. As keepers of medicinal, spiritual, and cultural knowledge, elders are the storytellers who meticulously impart information through shared experience. These teachers commit to endless hours of mentoring that requires the students to be persistent and the teacher to be patient. <clears throat> the passing along of sacred knowledge can take years. Cherokee language and translators are the most sought-after experts for miles around. Their hours are long and arduous, but our language's entire future rests heavily on their shoulders. For this reason, these native speakers are constant fixtures at events, workshops, or in schools, days, nights, and weekends. They are often long past the average age of retirement, <clears throat> but they have only increased their service to their community over the years. Regardless of expertise, Cherokee elders are expected to serve in whatever capacity they can. In modern times, fewer elders possess traditional knowledge of medicinal plants and language, but that in no way diminishes their roles in our communities. There are new wisdoms to impart, additional familial complications, and the increasing urgency for protecting core Cherokee values, including spirituality, group harmony, strong individual character, strong connection to land and stewardship, honoring the past, educating children, and possessing a sense of humor. It is a job, a responsibility, and an honor to be a Cherokee elder. So at our next Cherokee gathering, as my stomach growls and my children beg to get just one warm yeast roll, it becomes my responsibility to show them that patience is the first lesson they will be learning from their elders that day. The next lesson is that they will only inherit what is left for them by the generation that precedes them. That was Annette Sanook Clapsaddle reading her chapter from the new anthology, The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell. Next up, we'll hear Courtney Ballastier reading an excerpt from her chapter. Yeah, uh, my name is Courtney Ballastier. I'm a writer and an essayist I'm based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, originally from Morgantown, West Virginia. Great. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of introduce your chapter in The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell and read some of it for us. Absolutely. So my essay came about uh, because I had moved to Detroit, um, where I lived for about five years up until last year. Um, and that was my first introduction to this idea of the Hillbilly Highway and the migration that took place between Appalachia and the north, um, you know, specifically for me, Detroit. Um, so I became really interested in that history and those generations that had come up and kind of what had remained um, to sort of mark that passage. Um, and that's something I'm still very interested in my writing. I'm working on a novel right now that kind of has that um, as, a, as, a ponent, as a component of it. Um, so, yeah, my essay just kind of grew out of the curiosity of that, uh, you know, trying to find out um, where those people were and if they were still here and what their food looked like. And then, um, you know, when I, I think when I write a lot, 
I think a lot of my writing about Appalachia comes back to this kind of very ambivalent relationship that I can have with the place. And, and so I worked into the essay to my own experience of, of how I feel my relationship to that food as someone who also made a migration kind of much more willingly and much more like I have to get out of here, which is sort of how I felt when I was in my early 20s, um, sort of what the next phase of that relationship kind of looks like. Great. And just going to take a little drink of coffee and then I will start reading. Perfect. <laughs> that's okay. That's great. That's great. Okay. After my grandmother died, my mother started finding pennies everywhere. On the floor of her house in West Virginia, in her car, places where minutes or hours before there had not been pennies. The work of my grandmother, she believed. I didn't doubt it. I don't need to be convinced of the universe's potential for mystery, and anyway, as a writer, I'm fond of symbolism. So I couldn't overlook, years later, being confronted with my own message, a piece of family DNA so specific and, I thought, so idiosyncratic that all I could do when it was placed in my hands was laugh. A Cool Whip container full of soup beans. Old Cool Whip containers, originally purchased to make one or another dessert, were my grandmother's preferred method of kitchen storage, and more often than not, they were storing navy beans. Raised in a coal mining camp in Appalachian, Pennsylvania, she always had beans ready, and she was always sending people into her kitchen to get themselves something to eat, their hunger often irrelevant. I'm not saying that Appalachian grandmothers have the market on generosity cornered. I am saying that it's not a coincidence that the person who handed me that subsequent Cool Whip container of beans even though she did so in Metro Detroit, was also an Appalachian grandmother. We talk so much about work when we talk about Appalachia. Talk about ourselves as hardworking, hear ourselves described as hard workers. Often these conversations are about men, usually coal miners, who, of course, worked and work hard. But there are many kinds of work. There's also the work of women like my grandmother, the work of making and sustaining the homes that, together, make a place. This work is harder to see. But that's what this is all about before we get to the Cool Whip container, to the reason that this Appalachian grandmother and I were in Detroit in the first place. Work, in all its forms, and the communities we build around it, wherever it takes us. The Hillbilly Highway, the mid-20th century migration in which 7 million Appalachians left their economically stagnant mountains for the factory towns and cities of the North, Akron, Detroit, Chicago, was a path to work. In the 1940s, the Hillbilly Highway migration was spurred by the war effort and its need for tanks, planes, and armory. In Detroit, many Appalachians worked at Willow Run, a military bomber plant constructed in nearby Ypsilanti, and lived in the temporary community, Willow Village, constructed to house temporary workers. By the 1950s and 60s, the driving engine behind migration was mechanization in the coal mine, which had dramatically reduced jobs. And then Appalachians in Detroit got jobs in the auto industry at plants like Dodge, Maine, that no longer employ many people or no longer exist at all. The flow of traffic into Detroit was somewhat obvious. Henry Ford already owned coal mines in Kentucky and West Virginia, and northern companies had begun recruiting in the South, whose workers they believed to be unlikely to unionize, which is another way of saying to be unlikely to recognize the value of their work, the worth of the bodies that performed it. At both of the Hillbilly Highway's apogees then, it was about the work of brawn, the work that bosses are always telling Appalachians we do so well. Jobs were everywhere in Detroit then. Children of the migration have told me stories about, getting hire, about people getting hired the day they got to town, but people miss their homes. As Appalachian scholar Ronald D. Eller wrote in Uneven Ground, Appalachia since 1945, it was not uncommon on Friday nights in the 1950s to find the highways flowing south from Akron, Dayton, Cincinnati, Detroit, and Chicago filled with Appalachian migrants heading to West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. I imagine some of these people had intentions similar to Detroit area labor union president Lloyd T. Jones when he said of his own move to Detroit from Ford's Kentucky coal mines, I knew it would be easy to save up a couple thousand dollars in a year or so, go back home, put up a gas station, and then just coast along on the station's profits. But Jones stayed, of course. Appalachian Odyssey, an academic study of the migration, found that most others did too. Work is also what brought me to Detroit 60 years later, not from my native West Virginia, but from New York, my home for the previous eight years and where my ex-husband and I were living when a Detroit university offered him a professorship. I did not know about the Hillbilly Highway then, but now, when I imagine the Detroit my Appalachian forebears arrived in, the Paris of the Midwest, as it's known, 
visions of urbane glamour take over. Women with fur hand muffs and men in hats driving cars with the muscular elegance of sharks. Martha and the Vandellas in the four tops playing everywhere, nowhere, all the time, indivisible from the air itself. It's a place of energy, a city of industry, and an industrious city, a place of work. The Detroit I arrived in, late in the summer of 2013, still carried the sour smell of the city's bankruptcy, the nation's first. The August air was thick and unfriendly, and people shuffled silent streets, sometimes walking in the middle of the road, sometimes steering motorized wheelchairs, and I wondered why anyone had stayed. This was a naive question, but I asked it because I had not stayed in my home, and in not staying, I had expressed a certain ambivalence toward the threat of defeat, a certain refusal of responsibility for that outcome or any other. That's how it had begun for me, the studying of my steps, but not the retracing of them. The questioning whether some of us need to love some things that way, at a remove. Though my exile is self-imposed, I still feel the length of its tether every day in the choices I make and do not make. We just heard Courtney Ballastier reading her chapter from the new anthology, The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell, Contemporary Appalachian Tables, which was published by Ohio University Press in November 2019. Next up, we'll hear Emily Hilliard reading an excerpt from her chapter. My name is Emily Hilliard, and I'm the state folklorist with the West Virginia Folklife Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council. And my chapter is called The Reason We Make These Deep Fat Fried Treats in Conversation with the Rosette of Helvetia, West Virginia. So this is based on some field work I did through the West Virginia Folklife Program and Helvetia is a Swiss community of population 59 in the mountains in Randolph County. And at their centennial in 1969, um, the town matriarch, Eleanor Mayu, um, worked with a group of women from the Farm and Women's Club to revive some of the Swiss traditions of the community. So they were far enough away from the world wars that they felt that they could celebrate their Swiss uh, German heritage again. And so one of the uh, traditions that they revived was their Fasnacht festival. That's sort of like a Mardi Gras. Um, And today, uh, locals and tourists parade um, from one town dance hall to the other, which is a distance of of about two blocks wearing homemade paper mache masks and square dance under an effigy of Old Man Winter. And at midnight, they cut the old man down from the rafters and burn him on the bonfire and sing the very traditional West Virginia song, Country Roads, by John Denver. Um, So uh, while this is happening, um, women from the community have made um, pastries, like any good Mardi Gras, where you eat all of your... uh, fried food before Lent. And traditionally in Helvetia, they didn't eat rich foods during Lent and they didn't dance during Lent. So uh, this was a big hurrah before a period of austerity. So I wrote about uh, that practice of making these pastries and how a recipe is like a conversation and how this tradition has evolved over time. It's a chilly Friday morning in February, and I'm standing over a cast iron pot of hot oil in Eleanor Bettler's farmhouse kitchen, just outside Helvetia, West Virginia. Simon and Garfunkel's familiar refrain, they've all come to look for America, rings out over the oil sizzles, and the bright kitchen smells of grease and sugar. I hold a long stem tool that resembles a branding iron with an eight-petaled floral design on the end. It looks like a miniature stained glass window without the glass. Eleanor takes my picture with my camera, her carrier, Jazzy, bouncing around at my feet. Sharon Rollins and Linda Bunch-Smith peer over my shoulder as I dip the iron first into the hot oil, then into a bowl of batter, and again into the grease. A few seconds later, the batter releases from the iron as a fully formed rosette, delicate and crispy, with a rounded top and a hollow shell on the bottom. There you go, Sharon exclaims. Keep the iron hot, get the grease off of it, and don't cover it up, says Eleanor. Those are the three main rules of this game. Eleanor Butler, at 76, is energetic and sprightly, with short-cropped white hair and eyes that crinkle when she smiles. She was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, but her mother's family settled in Helvetia in 1872, and Eleanor spent the summers of her childhood there at her grandparents' home. I never wanted to go back to the city. 
Although Cleveland was lovely at the time and a nice place to be, I was a Helvetia girl all my life. Helvetia, population 59, is a Swiss community nestled in a high mountain valley of Randolph County, West Virginia. To call the presence of a Swiss community in a remote area of the mountain state unlikely would be a denial of the history and impact of the waves of immigration and relocation to central Appalachia by diverse cultural groups. In fact, there were several Swiss settlements scattered across the region in the late 19th century. But what makes Helvetia unusual resides not only in the physical preservation of the colorful 1869 Alpine village, but also in something less tangible. There is a creative enchantment about the place, exuding from the artful touches on the hand-painted signs peppered through the village, the camaraderie of the Helvetia Star Band, now in its fifth generation, and the friendly competition on display in the canned good, embroidery, and prized tomato entries at the annual agricultural fair. The intimacy of this community whose families have been neighbors, friends, and colleagues for generations is its own form of magic. This Saturday's Great Dance is not just one of the regular monthly dances held in the Helvetia Community Hall, but part of the community's pre-Lenten holiday, Fastnacht, translating as Fast Night, an amalgam of the traditional Swiss Fastnacht and Sessulaten, a rite of spring. Helvetia's take on the event is, like most things in Helvetia, a homespun affair where locals and visitors don homemade papier-mâché masks and process an Olympian parade between the two town dance halls, a distance of about two blocks. They also compete for miniature handmade felt Swiss flags in a mask contest, enjoy homemade fried pastries, square dance under an effigy of Old Man Winter, and at the stroke of midnight, cut the old man from the rafters and burn him on the bonfire outside for a triumphant a cappella rendition of John Denver's Country Roads. The reason we make these deep fat fried treats is because it's Fat Tuesday before the Lenten fast, Eleanor tells me. They would eat rich foods for the last time for 40 days. People don't do that so much anymore in general, but here it was a general thing. They didn't dance during Lent, and they had a big celebration before Ash Wednesday. And then it was shut off until Easter Sunday. Today, Fosnox doesn't feel so much like a last hurrah before a period of austerity, as it does a bright spot in the dead of winter intended to both reinforce cultural identity for locals and to lure wintertime tourists to the secluded town. Nevertheless, the tradition of eating fried rosettes, blots, and yeast-raised donuts has remained part of the Fosnack celebration. The treats are served on a side table during the dance as attendees jockey to get them. They disappear quickly. Sitting open on Eleanor's table is a well-worn copy of Opus Guetzbo Helvetia, translating as something good from Helvetia a cookbook of community recipes collected by town matriarch and Hute co-founder Eleanor Mayu for the Helvetia Centennial in 1969, the year after Fastnacht was revived as a public holiday. The book is a dog-eared standby in all Helvetia home kitchens. The recipe for rosettes is listed just under a recipe for old-fashioned fruitcake, both originating from the kitchen of Alma Berkey. The rosette iron we use came from Switzerland with the Berkeys a century ago, it is well-aged, triple exclamation point, reads the typed head note. Underneath the recipe, Eleanor has written an addendum in her loose cursive. My grandma, Ann McNeil, told me her secret to crispiness is adding about a tablespoon of bourbon. While the necessary ingredients are minimal, the process requires some practice, not to mention the special rosette iron. As is often the case with community cookbooks whose intended audience is the home cooks of the community itself, the instructions are sparse. There's no specification of type of fat or sugar, nor timing or temperature. So to an outsider, the recipe's terseness could feel like a frustrating omission. This assumption of knowledge communicated through the text is a way of ensuring that rosettes are not parsed from their local story and oral history. In Helvetia, rosette making is a process best learned in person rather than from a book. Eleanor remembers her aunt and mother making rosettes for Easter and when she visited in the summer. But when Eleanor moved to Helvetia after she got married, she relearned how to make them from her family members. The lack of specificity in the recipe inspires conversation, even for those in the know. As Bunch stacks the cooled rosettes and prepares to dust them with sugar, she asks Eleanor what type to use. Some of the people use regular and some use powdered sugar, Eleanor replies. I chime in, I remember last year when I interviewed you, you said, well, you use what you've got. That's right, Eleanor says, and the women agree, completing each other's sentences. 
up here you use what you've got because for what your neighbor has, you have to improvise once in a while. You can't get to the grocery store very often. They decide to sprinkle powdered sugar on their rosettes with the caveat that if they don't like them this time, they'll try something different next year. They're casual about the process, negotiating the various steps anew each time they gather to make them. But Eleanor, who grew up with the fried confections and learned the process from her family matriarch, is deferred to as the authority. When the butlers were raising and butchering hogs on the farm, Eleanor fried her rosettes in lard. They had plenty on hand. But now that she doesn't keep pigs, lard is expensive to purchase, and she only buys it to make soap. She made the switch to frying rosettes in vegetable oil, not just for economy, but also for health reasons. Not that deep fat fried is healthy whatsoever, she wryly adds. In the evolution of her rosette making process, Eleanor enacts folklorist Henry Glassie's definition of tradition as the creation of the future out of the past. While ingredients, techniques, styles, and tools change according to time and context, the tradition persists with Eleanor as its creative agent. While folklorist Henry Glassie asserts that tradition is the creation of the future out of the past, I'd phrase it another way, that tradition puts the past and the future in conversation. Traditions mutate and evolve as they encounter and enter into dialogue with influences inside and out, global and local. The grandmother who adds whiskey to the printed recipe, the friends who decide to try powdered sugar instead of granulated this year, the home cook who swaps her lard for vegetable oil, and an heirloom tool for a smaller, more practical version. The Midwesterner folklorist who learns to make rosettes from the home cook, finds her own iron, and introduces them to her friends. The granddaughter who learns about a Turkish tradition from said Midwesterner folklorist and adapts it for her West Virginia Swiss community. And what better symbol for this than a rosette iron, a physical embodiment of the past and future negotiation? Metal forged centuries ago will make fresh rosettes tomorrow. That was Emily Hilliard reading an excerpt from her chapter From the Food We Eat, the Stories We Tell, an anthology published in November 2019 that explores contemporary Appalachian tables and stories. Last in this episode of Mountain Talk, we'll hear Robert Geip reading his chapter from the book. My name is Robert Geip. I live in Harlan, Kentucky. Um, I work at Southeast Kentucky Community and Technical College, producer of Higher Ground, a community performance project there. And I am also the author of two novels, uh, Trampoline and Weed Eater. And I got a third coming out called Pop, and they're from the Ohio University Press. Confessions of a Spear Packer. When I graduated college and first got an interview for a full-time job, I went to the library and found a book on how to write a resume. It said one should put quantifiable stuff on one's resume. Sales increased 15% while I was under assistant marketing director. Or, I had responsibility for 17 salespeople working in the eight-county area, that kind of thing. But I was an English major. I'd never done anything quantifiable. So I put that I could pack 840 jars of pickles in an eight-hour shift, which is true. I can. I worked in a pickle factory one summer when I was in college. What I didn't put on my resume was that the pickle factory where I worked paid you by the hour based on your rate of production over the span of a week. That meant if one packed as hard as one could all day long, all week, one got paid 10 or $12 an hour. And that was a nice chunk of change in 1986, which was when I worked in the cucumber economy. We packed spears at my pickle factory, and the spears had to be packed with the seeds all facing out so that the discriminating pickle shopper could gauge the freshness of the spear. Factory management couldn't figure out how to get a machine to back the spears in the jar with the seed sides out, although all summer long they sent engineers to stand and watch us pack. The engineers tried to figure out how to design a machine to replace us, but they couldn't, not in the summer of 86. This is the way of the spear line. One had a partner, and one had a stainless steel tray of fresh cucumber spears. Our factory packed spears the day the cucumbers were picked. The fresh cucumbers were cut into spears and fed into a hopper of brine. 
a worker brought a fish net full of spears and spilled them out on, onto one's tray, and one went to packing. To pack a jar of spears, one puts two fingers against the skin side of a spear and then lines the inside of the jar with spears. Seat out, seat out, seat out. So they were standing against the inside of the jar. Then one took a handful of spears and shoved them in the middle with a pop of the flat of one's hand. Then one put the jar upside down on a shelf above one's tray. And a checker came and punched one's card every time one got a case of 12 jars. The checkers checked the jars to make sure all the spears were seat out. They shook the jars to make sure they were packed tight. If the spears came out, one had to redo that jar. But once one got the hang of it, one didn't have to repack much. It should be said, one is supposed to wear latex gloves while packing. It should be said most packers can't pack as fast wearing latex gloves. One day I was packing without my gloves and I had a hangnail long as a fish hook. And I was tearing it open every time my hand went over the edge of the jar. So I put a band-aid over the hangnail. And I was rolling along, hangnailing all, seat out, seat out, seat out, middle hand full pop, seat out, seat out, seat out, middle hand full pop. And I looked up and my band-aid wasn't on my finger. I looked around for it in my tray, and it wasn't there. I looked on the floor for it, and it wasn't there. And it become clear there was only one place it could have gone. In a jar. Boy, they hated to stop that spear line. They sure did. But I called my checker over, and I said, Buddy, I think I sent a Band-Aid through the line. And the checker said, It don't matter. They pasteurize them after they get to y'all. And I was comforted enough by this information to go back to work. Although I still thought from time to time... Although I still thought from time to time that summer that band-aid perhaps concealed in the center of the jar so that no one ever noticed and the jar shipped and stocked and bought and opened, perhaps at a cookout where a mother and then a whole family and then the whole picnic ground recoiled in horror at the sight of my band-aid, all of them running through the picnic area, waving their arms and screaming. I imagine lawyers engaged and the whole company going down in a Hail of bad publicity over my pickled band-aid. All the spear packers and cucumber farmers thrown out of work. In time, though, I put my worries aside. I got the job I applied for with the pickle statistics on my resume. I even told the story of the band-aid in my interview and mostly forgot about the pickle factory. I had a chance in later life to ask about the spear line and was told the factory was still there. But they shut down the spear line and no longer hired an army of spear packers every summer. The person I asked said people don't care anymore if their seeds people don't care anymore if their spears aren't seed side out. What does it mean for that work to go out of the world? That company had all us working just so their pickles would look better on the shelf, fearless in their freshness quietly saying to the discriminating pickle shopper, we welcome your scrutiny. There is risk in presenting oneself as human, capable of pride, capable of failure. There is risk in doing things in, in labor-intensive ways. More spear packers means more band-aids, more potential for disaster, more expense. The savvy pickle company owner knows they are better off without them. If no one packs seeds side out, then what difference does it make? One might say, I buy my pickles at the farmer's market, or my friends make pickles and my frigidaire is full of delicious artisanal pickles. One might make a point about scale, knowing one's pickle backer, about brine and local. I love the spear line. I love the sight of all of us down the row of stainless steel trays going as hard as we could in our hairnets and our plastic aprons and our ungloved hands. I loved all of us lounging around outside the plant during break, buying hot dogs from a food truck, arguing with the farmers about who had it rougher. I loved when the line stopped and the most ambitious packers scurried for jars while the rest of us smoked and complained. All that is gone, and I have no idea what English majors quantify on their resumes. 
I wish it were easier to count. I wish it were easier for things to count and for people to count. I wish I'd worn my gloves. I'm sorry. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at wmmt.org. Or download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. Music on this episode features John Herod with a tune called Wild Hog and the Red Bresh off of his album Johnny Come Along. That album was released by Apple Shop's own June Apple Recordings. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.